This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which publishes loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One of the best ways you can support and sustain Haymarket's publishing is by becoming a member of a Haymarket Book Club. As a book club member, your monthly subscription helps Haymarket continue to publish books for changing the world, and you receive one or more books per month delivered straight to your door, as well as a standing 50% discount off all titles on the Haymarket website. Book club members receive as many as 50 books per year, and book club subscriptions begin at just $10 a month. Learn more about Haymarket's book clubs and join hundreds of subscribers helping to ensure the future of radical publishing at haymarketbooks.org. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I'm back with part two of my interview with Vincent Bevins on his absolutely must-read new book, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. What Bevins is trying to do is to solve perhaps the most important puzzle posed by recent history. How did a decade of global mass protest so often lead not to revolutionary change, but instead to terrifying reconsolidations of extreme reaction? Bevin's answer is that mass protest movements created revolutionary situations, but without the disciplined Leninist organizations that are necessary to take advantage of such situations by seizing power and then governing. Please listen to part one of this interview if you haven't done so already. Again, this interview will make a lot more sense if you listen to part one first. Also, everyone's minds are obviously on Palestine right now, and we're working hard to get you a few episodes over the coming weeks. The dig does not move fast in response to breaking news, but do stay tuned for important interviews with Noura Erekat, Ariel Angel, and Tarek Bakoni, and maybe others too. In the meantime, please explore our archives. I'll link to all our episodes on Palestine and Israel in the show notes. Briefly, please do support The Dig if you're a regular listener who appreciates what we do. We're operating on the honor system. The only way we can put out this podcast every week with no paywall so that everyone can listen regardless of your financial situation is because those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have books, tote bags, coffee mugs to mail you depending on how much you contribute and where you live in the world. All contributors, no matter how much you contribute or where you live, get our newsletter delivered to your email inbox. Contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I'm also including a link to Palestinian relief agencies in the show notes. Donate generously. Okay, here's Vincent Bevins, a journalist and longtime foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Jakarta Method and his book that we're discussing today. If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Vincent Bevins, welcome back to The Dig. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. (laughs) 
It seems like the problem you're identifying in your book isn't just that particular movement leaders rejected the idea of leadership and hierarchy as inherently undemocratic, though that is part of it. It's also, I think that these movements came about during a moment where we have, throughout the entire neoliberal period, experienced what you describe as a generalized crisis of representation. Mm -hmm. What is this crisis of representation that you describe? What brought it about? And how does that context help explain why these movements took the form that they did? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that when we talk about the the ingredients in this recipe that identified that the fact that these mass explosions tend to be horizontally structured, there is a ideological and material reason for that structure. There are the groups such as the MPL in Brazil that believe in self-conscious horizontalism, that they believe that this is the best way to organize. But then you also get movements in many other countries. Egypt is an example where you have something more like concrete horizontality, where many of the original organizers would have loved to create revolutionary parties, working class organizations. They believed in structure and organization, but it was the concrete decimation of Egyptian society under decades of neoliberalism that left them without these organizations, the, the decimation of carried out by economic policies, but also autocratic government in North Africa. And even when it comes to horizontalism, this intentional approach to organization, that comes from a concrete experience in 2001 of the absolute decimation of all of the structures that traditionally represented people in Argentine society. And so I interviewed some of the people that took part in the famous uh, assemblies that spring up after the total collapse of the state in 2001 in Argentina. And they say, well, you know, all of the everything that we had that used to work just had gone away. The state was was gone. Unions and firms could not respond to the crisis in any way that was coherent or helpful. The parties were at a loss. And so even the ideological approach to horizontality, the, the, the intentional horizontalism comes out of, across the board in the neoliberal era, the decimation of the older union or party or even state structures. And it's pretty widely recognized that there's some kind of crisis of representation. The, the simplest way to describe this is to say that the people that are in charge are more responsive to economic elites than to the people that vote for them. And this is like uncontroversial in political science. Like if you look at the, what actually motivates political actors, even in sort of democracies, representative democracies like the United States, we do not have the representation that we are supposed to have. And it was, you know, accurate to believe that this was not working. Uh, and one approach, the, the approach that was more intentionally or more self-consciously ideological, sought to reject this very imperfect representation rather than try to rebuild it. And other cases around the world, again, back to the Egyptian revolutionaries, just because it's a, the, the one we just spoke about, they would have loved to have representative structures often. They had simply been decimated by the Mubarak regime. You invoke the term anti-politics, which was first coined, I think, in 1990 by anthropologist James Ferguson. What is anti-politics as you would define it? And what does it have to do with with that crisis of representation. Yeah, anti-politics is it's 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 fairly simple. It's it is opposition to politics as such, to politics as a human practice. So in the case of the movement Passi Livre, they are what they call in Portuguese a partidário. So they 
are not aligned with any party. They're never going to join a party. They're not doing party politics. But they're not against the, the existence of politics. They are not against the fact that politics is happening. But there's a slippage that happens in June 2013 in the streets and afterwards. And they notice this and they're quite horrified by it. That what they what to them was staying outside of party politics, was staying outside of politics, was understood by people that enter the streets or overwhelmed via the people that enter the streets as a full re- rejection of politics in general. So this, into- this attitude, this anti-political attitude, I think can be useful in understanding the rise of, you know, like your common sense, like men on the street being like, they're all bums, they're all clowns, throw them out. And this kind of widespread attitude that, again, political scientists trace very carefully. I cite a book that um, concentrates primarily on the UK in the period around Brexit. But everybody, I think it's, it's pretty easy to think of cases where just presenting yourself as not part of the existing political system means that somehow you're better than the existing political system. I think in Brazil, there's the election of a clown, literally a clown that says, you know, I'm, I'm being a clown means that I'm less of a clown than the clowns in Congress. Uh, and Donald Trump, I think, is an expression of anti-political sentiment. Emmanuel Macron is an expression of anti-political sentiment. He's like, oh, screw all the really old parties. I'm going to make France into a startup. Uh, Zelensky, I think, is an expression of anti-politics being like, you know, his entire television show is this, like a regular guy gets made president and like that's better than the political establishment. And, you know, he is literally a comedian that gets elected because he's outside of, of politics. In and the so, U.S., uh, so-called no labels. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, or, you know, um, beyond left and right, like, you know, uh, let's leave that in the past. In Brazil, this was a very common trope in the 2014s and 2015 because for a while in Brazil, nobody ever admitted to being on the right. So this was the thing that Bolsonaro brought back in a big way that you're allowed to say you're on the right. But... From like 2012 to 2015, if anyone was like, oh, I don't believe in left to right, that was like a code for like, well, they're probably like on the right. Because at the extreme end of anti-politics, and this is where this slippage happens once more in Brazil, I'm going back to the case that I lived through, this a party or a partidario stance in Brazil slips into anti-politica or anti-politics, which slips into, in the case of Bolsonaro, a wholesale rejection of democracy. A, a an embrace of authoritarianism because anti-politics is always still politics politics doesn't go away it doesn't and go away. No, for a lot of away. these reasons you're describing the slippage of the the pretext of anti-politics is rather often towards right-wing politics yes i you know i remember this growing up i mean i think we were sort of the canary in the coal mine i mean <laughs> california for better or worse often for worse is ahead of certain kinds of developments, you know, are sort of ends up defining too much of the 21st century. But Arnold Schwarzenegger was like, the, was the first time that I remember this really happening, that everyone was like, ha ha ha, fuck all of them, let's put in an actor. And that will be our way of saying fuck you to the system. And this is something that like, throughout the 2010s, if you look as a very general, as a very general rule, every time that the people have been given the opportunity to, to say fuck you to the system, they've usually taken it. Like, if you present uh, in, you know, in referendum form, one of the options on the ballot is fuck you and the other one is I like you, people will vote for fuck you. And like the anti-political sentiment I think is pretty widespread. And again, like the core crisis is real. Like it is not wrong to think that the system is not as representative as it should be, but the outright rejection of it, you know, again, it doesn't go away. Somebody takes advantage of it and often the people that are best positioned to take advantage of this sort of rhetorically and structurally are the right. 
why in Brazil and probably elsewhere too, but why in Brazil were anti-corruption populist politics such a particularly good vehicle for right-wing anti-politics as a whole? Is that that anti-corruption in particular allows for the framing of a political agenda as non-political and thus that the political faction that's pursuing the quote-unquote anti-corruption campaign is not a faction, but instead presents itself as, as representing the entirety of the people? Yeah, I think that's right. The perfect vehicle for supplying a reason for why the protests are good in the anti-political conception of Brazilian society in 2013 was anti-corruption. Because being against corruption is tautological. Everyone's against corruption. Like, it's in the word. It's bad. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, you can launch a defense, you can carry out informed studies of the political economy of capitalist societies and note that there's often collusion between the business elite and the state and that in every successful case of capitalist development, there is some kind of collusion between the most important capitalist actors in the state. So that, that could be a launch of a defensive, quote unquote, corruption. But it's not a cor defensive corruption because it's in the word that it's bad, right? And this gets back to the critique that has been launched against these protests in general, is that they're against everything that's bad and for everything that's good. And just to get give a sense of like the ridiculousness of the ultimate outgrowth of this sort of attitude, Sergio Moro, the main judge in the Lava Jato crusade, who is, which has been now shown to be quite corrupt itself and that shown to be uh, interacting behind the scenes with the United States government throughout as it imprisoned Lula, he becomes super justice minister in the Bolsonaro government. And one of his flagship projects is the anti-crime law. <laughs> like all laws are anti-crime. Like this is, <laughs> yeah, you could not, there could not be a more obvious move to try to carry out common sense politics. And so in, in Brazil in 2013, everybody knew in 2012, 2011, that corruption is a problem. But before the explosion of June 2013, only 5% of respondents in surveys said that it was the main problem facing the country. This rose a lot in the month of June 2013 and afterwards. But then later, as these right-wing forces that were born uh, on the streets that month took a leadership role in the new protest movement against Dilma, this overlapped with an upsurge in support for the Lava Jato anti-corruption crusade, not only amongst middle-class and right-leading sectors of Brazilian society, but especially amongst the major media in Brazil and around the world. And of course, this is the problem with any anti-politics, anything that, 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 that presents itself as being above or beyond categories of left and right. The more we learned about Sergio Moro and the other people in the Lava Jato crusade, we learned that they were not only breaking the law in order to go after one party and especially one man more than anybody else in Brazilian society, they just were right-wing guys. These were guys on the extreme right. They personally were motivated by extreme right beliefs. They were also motivated by a sort of a deep, deep belief that whatever happened in the United States, that the United States was just uh, a great example of how to run a justice system. But once you know the dust cleared and Lula's in jail and Bolsonaro was elected, they emerge and say, oh, no, actually, yeah, uh, we're going to join the Bolsonarista movement. That's who we are. And this was suspected the whole time by the left. But anti-corruption, like anti-politics, allows you to present yourself to society as above all of that. Whereas like everything exists concretely in relationship to the system of any given country or, or indeed the, the planet. Yeah. And when what you're talking about sounds like common sense to most people, Gramsci talks about this a lot, that's hegemonic politics. Absolutely. It's common sense politics. It's, you know, they're all clowns, throw them out. 
we're against crime. Let's let's pass a law against crime. Uh, I'm anti-corruption. Of course, everyone's anti-corruption. But what type of actions do you take to stamp out corruption? And in the case of Sergio Moro, he had based his campaign on an Italian anti-corruption campaign, Mani Puliti. I don't know. My, my Italian's not as good. You only speak four and a half languages. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mani Puliti or clean hands. And in, if you go back and read his his writings on on clean hands in Italy, everybody knows that it didn't quite work. But another part of his plans for launching an anti-corruption campaign in Brazil is getting the media on side. You can't do it without getting the media on side. And he absolutely does. Not only the major Brazilian media that is owned by oligarchs and, and powerful families in the country, but most of the mainstream English language media around the world. In Cairo's Tahrir Square, there were these huge mass protests, initially led by the secular left, but then joined by the masses, masses that included notably the Muslim Brotherhood. And ultimately, the movement, as people who've observed this history know, it resulted in in free elections in which the more secular or left Egyptians split their vote, leading to the Brotherhood's Mohamed Morsi being elected, which in turn led to Islamist overreach and then to the military, led by Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, taking advantage of secularist opposition to the Brotherhood to launch a coup, all of which led to this just brutal massacre of a thousand Brotherhood members. And today, I think quite clearly the most authoritarian government in Egyptian history, which is saying something. There are so many lessons that you draw from this experience, but a major one is that the secularist movement was relatively leaderless and incohate, whereas the Muslim Brotherhood was organized. So too, of course, was the military. And you argue that politics does not allow for a vacuum, that if you blow up the system, that the power will be seized by those best organized to do so. This is a key argument of your book. How, how did that play out in Egypt? And how did what happened in Egypt compare to what played out elsewhere throughout the so-called Arab Spring? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So the, the Muslim Brotherhood is older than the Egyptian Republic. The Muslim Brotherhood was formed before the establishment of Egypt as the state that we now recognize it as. This was a, a real organization. And I think importantly is one of the organizations that played a role in the type of neoliberal, quote unquote, civil society that was allowed to flourish in North Africa. They often played the role of sort of the NGO civil society actor that you might find analogs for elsewhere around the world. So the Muslim Brotherhood was a coherent group. Uh, they were organized. They understood what they wanted. And they had real members. They had real power in the streets. Now, the original planners of January 25th, often people that really did believe in a uh, revolutionary project, often people that had been involved in coordinating uh, a wave of wildcat strikes outside of Cairo in the years before, often came together. And indeed, the the tactic of taking Tahrir Square in the first place, this particular element of the Egyptian rep repertoire, came together as a result of years of organizing in, in support of Palestine. So a lot of the people that came up in the 2000s as activists understood activism as synonymous with or, you know, overlapping in very, very strong ways with support for, for Palestine. And when far more people join 
what is initially a protest movement, but then it quickly becomes a revolutionary situation uh, than they expected. Yes, there are all kinds of other people that are involved. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood joins later than the original organizers, but they do join this revolutionary movement. And when ultimately Tahrir Square is quote-unquote successful at forcing the end of the Mubarak regime, what actually happens is the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces SCAF, uh, the military, takes power and, t- and says, we're going to put on elections. We're, you know, we're in charge, but don't worry because we're going to put on elections. We want democracy. Uh, you want democracy. We're going to have democracy. Now, a couple things happen among the more secular and progressive elements of Egyptian society, which if you look at the first round results in 2012, could be a, a majority. You could, have, you could have imagined them coming together in such a way to elect a secular uh, and progressive leader. Hamdin Sabahi, who I interviewed very quickly for this book, said that he was inspired to a large extent most by Lula out of all of the global leaders on the scene in the years up to 2012. But in in the period between 2011 and 2012, you have a couple of things that happened for Egyptians' uh, original, more secular and progressive revolutionaries. Some of them don't trust or don't believe in the election that's about to come. So some of them say, well, the point is not elections. The point is the square is going to become, the square is the revolution. Participating in elections put on by SCAF is a betrayal of the original ideals. Now, this is not exactly, this is probably a small minority of what Egyptians think, but this is there's an elective affinity between global coverage of Tahrir Square and this particular type of attitude. This gets reproduced quite a lot by people like me, this idea that, no, 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 we're not about taking over the state, we're about the revolution is here. But then you also just have, there's this, this very limited amount of time to coordinate electoral strategy for the first ever time that maybe there will be a free and fair election, or maybe some, some people are very suspicious that SCAF is going to put on a free and fair election. And so this allows for the two candidates that could have expressed support for the original slogan, bread, freedom, social justice, that defined some of the early days of the revolution. These two candidates are split in the first round, and then you get Morsi taking over. And then under Morsi's obviously very imperfect rule, reactionary Gulf monarchies, who would stand to lose if there were truly a democracy in Egypt act behind the scenes to fund an incipient protest movement that presents itself to the world as kind of the same thing as the 2011 protest movement, but results in massive, massive demonstrations in 2013. And this ultimately allows for the Sisi coup, which establishes a dictatorship, which is even worse than Mubarak, immediately massacres civilians in Rabah Square, and then nothing happens. The international community doesn't do anything. There's no way to launch like another 2011 against police brutality. You can't just summon that tactic at will. This this goes back, you know, this is something that came back in 1968 with André Gorse's essay on, on Paris. Like, it's very difficult to put together a surprise uprising more than once in a generation. And that's something that the anti-globalization movement struggled to learn after Seattle. Yeah, I mean, you said, yeah, you, you spoke about this last time. You spoke about this dynamic of, of moving from a successful disruption to, uh, what was it? Um, summit hopping. Summit hopping, precisely, summit hopping. What I find different and more very interesting about the Egyptian case compared to, say, Libya, where initial discontent with the Gaddafi government, which is, of course, is real and is based on real and legitimate concerns about Gaddafi, is simply used as an excuse for regime change. NATO, in the case of uh, Libya, decides to use 
what is happening on the ground as an opportunity to launch a regime change operation, apparently thinking this will work out in some way for them or the Libyan people instead destroying the country. It's different than the case of Syria, where you really have different sectors of society with different ideas of what a post-Assad world would look like. Most importantly, key members of the national security apparatus in Syria decide to stick with Assad, which means that it quickly becomes uh, a war rather than a the type of mass protest explosion that I look at most carefully in this book. And so the Egyptian case, I think, is really fascinating because you can imagine a lot of different ways that if the protests were constituted slightly differently or if the movement, if things had gone very slightly differently, you could really imagine a totally different outcome, which is harder in, other, in some of the other cases in the so-called Arab Spring. Egypt is a really fascinating case to trace from the beginning to the middle to the end because there, I think there was so much opportunity there and so much to be learned. And not only that, because it, that the very inspiring scenes in Tahrir Square in 2011 become so important in defining what happens in the rest of the decade. You write, quote, They chose to stay in Tahrir Square, the default destination for many in the crowd. It was an empty piece of land, and its conquest offered no strategic value, except for visibility. This had not been planned, and some participants soon questioned why it happened. Would it not have made more sense to actually charge the halls of power and take control? Should a revolutionary movement not seize the television and radio stations so it can stop the regime from broadcasting its propaganda? It was all there for the taking. But if they did that, who would have been in charge of deciding what to do with them? This is a really fascinating example of this larger point. You make a key point of your book, which is that protests are not very good at making actual revolutions because protests are, you write, quote, communicative events aimed at existing elites. You write, quote, in the mass protest decade, street explosions created revolutionary situations, often on accident. But a protest is very poorly equipped to take advantage of a revolutionary situation. And that particular kind of protest is especially bad at it. If you believe that you can forge a better society, if you are willing to run the risk of trying, then you should enter the vacuum yourself. But a diffuse group of individuals who come out to the streets for very different reasons cannot simply take power themselves, at least not as an entire group of individuals. Once someone goes in there and takes power in the name of the masses, you are talking about a type of vanguard, a particular ideological project, and a minority of people who dare to try to represent the rest of the population. In some of the more utopian strains of anti-authoritarian thought, the riot is supposed to become the new society. But this has not worked out so far. This is such an important argument. How, how should movements determine whether their goal is reform or revolution? Or perhaps even if a movement's ultimate goal is revolution, that still leaves the question of how to successfully make one, how a movement can strategically assess if revolution is not immediately possible, how to win reforms and orchestrate retreats in such a way that over time, at some point, revolution might be possible. How should organizations think about this important insight of yours? And what sort of organizations do we need to even have the capacity to undertake this sort of strategic analysis and decision-making in the first place? I would argue that the, the type of organization you need is one that is capable of careful and constant analysis of the concrete configurations of power that undertakes serious intellectual work at all times as to what is possible and what can be achieved and the best way to achieve it, 
but that also is capable of shifting tactics very quickly as circumstances change. And again, this is something that this particular type of protest, this particular repertoire of contention was not good at. Changing tactics is very, very difficult in the case of the Brazilian uprising, in the case of the Egyptian uprising, and in many of the uprisings that we saw across the mass protest decade, because you need some kind of a pre-existing decision-making system that can act very, very quickly. And just to get back to the Egyptian case, because I think I, I thank you for using it for this point, because I think it's a really good one. I spoke, you know, with several of the people that were planning the January 25th protest that brought more people onto the streets than expected, and then ultimately grew into the January 28th uprising that essentially beat the police in a street battle and allowed them to do whatever they wanted. But but that opportunity is 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 very short-lived. And the people that had been planning the January 25th protest, one of them told to me, he said, someone said, well, what do we do when we take the square? And everybody laughed in the meeting because they were like, that's ridiculous. We're not actually going to be able to take the square. We're going to try to get there. We're going to go, the, the cops are going to, we're going to go to battle with the cops and we're going to lose. Um, so they had not planned for this, not because they were ideologically committed to never thinking about strategy. They just were far more successful than they hoped. But U.S. sociologist Charles Tilley, who I draw upon for this language that I keep using, repertoire of contention, he makes a couple of points which are quite interesting, uh, is that in moments of opportunity, in moments when human beings respond to injustice, they tend to do stuff that they already know how to do, that they've done before, that they've seen somewhere else. And that's not necessarily the right thing. It's just the way that human beings act when opportunities present themselves, we, we, we draw on stuff we already know. And we often in these moments, especially in these key revolutionary situations, these moments last an hour, 16 hours, sometimes five minutes. And so having studied very carefully previously everything that could be possible and everything that could be done is important, as is the ability to quickly change tack. Now, horizontality, whether intentional and horizontalist or just concrete horizontality, has a very hard time changing tactics in five minutes. It's, it's, it's very difficult to establish consensus or just to get the message out to all of the different uh, individuals on the streets that we need to decide what to do and then everyone come to a decision as to what to actually do quickly enough to take advantage of these situations. This was a real problem for the MPL in Brazil. Um, they had torturous 14-hour, 16-hour meetings over the key days of June 2013. They were already exhausted, injured, overstretched, and yet they were trying to establish consensus as to what to do with this opportunity that had presented them to them. And Charles Tilly, once more, he has a, this, this essay, which um, I'm not sure if I'll be able to summarize well, but I'll try. It's an essay called The Invisible Elbow, so rather than the, in the invisible hand, he argues that history is pushed forward by what happens as a response to unexpected setbacks. And what he's talking about, this is a strange image. He's like talking when you're like coming back from the, the grocery store and you start to like you can't get into the door and then you, you start to drop your bags and then like your reflexes will just kick in and you'll sort of like knock open the door with your elbow and grab the bag. And like that will always be something that you've not, like your body has learned how to do previously. It'll be muscle memory. And, and he argues that history is pushed forward by like the muscle memory that is employed when plans go wrong. So, so again, like the, an organization like the MST, I, I don't remember if we, I mentioned this. Uh, I spent a lot of the summer in this summer in Brazil dealing with them. And they, they do have both. They have a set of schools across the country, a set of, they have a publishing house. They have 
a sector in their hierarchical but very democratic organization dedicated to the full-time study of Brazilian conditions and the history of land reform and the history of uh, social movements. But they also have been able to, and Bolsonaro's government was an example of this, they also have the ability to, as an organization, quickly change tactics based on changing circumstances. So that is the the much easier said than done answer to, I think, that, that final question is what what kind of organizations can decide on whether or not reform or revolution is possible and then take advantage of the unexpected opportunities and the inevitable failures that will present themselves to you over the course of struggle. Figures in the in the West, of course, liberals and really all sorts of people have have long idealized Maidan protesters as representing this deep, fundamentally united Ukrainian people fighting for a liberal Western vision of of freedom against the despotic Eastern other Russia. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin frames things as precisely the inverse. What actually happened in the streets of Kiev and and how does that reality and the ways it was then obfuscated help us understand just the entire nightmare that's taken place since? Yeah, that's a good way to frame the question. The answer is complicated. I think we have to do the complicated answer to actually make sense of what happens. First, I would say that it's not necessarily the far right, I think, that is the most organized, but I would say that they are particular type of organization and their particular skill set meant that they were in a position to punch well above their weight. I think that's the important distinction to make. If you look at polling before Maidan, after Maidan, it is absolutely not the case that the far right had much support amongst society, but they were able to play a much larger role than they should have. Arguably, they should have played almost none, even if, you know, or I would have loved for them to have played none, but they played a much, much larger role than their uh, small degree of support in Ukrainian society would have dictated because of the ways in which they were organized beforehand. They were good at the particular types of battles that emerge on the streets in in Ukraine. And one thing that I found that was interesting in, in my approach to my approach to Ukraine, as with everything else in the book, if it has any value at all, it's it's putting these events next to the, each other and seeing what appears to be the same and what appears to be different. And what I found interesting is that in the three uprisings in 2013, the far right shows up in all of them. The far right shows up in Gezi Park, but ends up not playing that much of a role. The far right shows up in Brazil and plays a different, more long-term role. And the far right shows up in Ukraine, but the particular constitution of forces and the particular type of street situation that you have in Kiev means that they end up playing some role in shaping the outcome of Maidan. And that's because of the role of organized violence on the streets of, of Kiev. It's because of the ways in which they succeed at taking advantage of the particular type of opportunities presented by a long-term occupation of public space in front of the capital, especially one in which a political solution does not seem clear because society in Ukraine was divided before Maidan and was divided during Maidan. But I find the way to the best way to approach this is to go in chronological order because again, there is a tendency on all sides, and I think it's understandable what happens because of social media to flatten sort of space and time and to view each one of these protests as like one thing. Whereas as we I think we discussed, like the beginning of Brazil 2013 is way different than the end of 2013. Indeed, like the morning of one day is different than the afternoon of one day. 
So to start with Ukraine, the first thing that I will say is that absolutely everyone in Ukraine, like all all of the Ukrainian people got a very, very bad deal from 1989 to 2013. They were absolutely failed by elites in what was left of the post-Soviet political establishment. Almost everybody had a great reason to be very upset with the state of things economically and politically in Ukraine in 2013. But there's like three different movements. I mean, again, there's more than three movements. There's thousands of movements. But there's three general ways to divide the movements with Maidan. At the very beginning, it is a set of Western-facing liberal. Again, all of this is a total generalization. But at the beginning, you have a small group of Western-facing liberals, often working for civil society groups funded by the West. And this is not like, you know, that's not conspiratorial. Like They admit to it. We talked about the problems and opportunities offered by uh, Western support, but it is just the case that a lot of the, the dozens or perhaps a hundred people, uh, hundreds of people that show up in the very beginning are Western facing or have some kind of relationship to Western backed, quote unquote, civil society. And initially, this is about support for association agreement with the European Union. Now, again, there's a kind of a flattening that says that this is what it's all about in the long term. But at this point, in the very beginning, only, I think, 39% of Ukrainians in November 2013 actually want this particular association agreement with the European Union. All U- Ukrainians would be happy to join like the first world in the sense of being rich uh, and being actually invited into the West. But this particular European association agreement uh, was not that attractive to that many people. Artem, one of the main characters in my modern section, he considered it to be a neoliberal set of reforms. He was not so excited about it. So at the very beginning, you had a very specific issue, and this is the same thing you had in Gezi Park. You have one very specific issue, which does not motivate the entire country, really. But there are dedicated activists uh, that believe in it, that are on the streets. Then you have the crackdown. And once more, as in many other places, the crackdown leads to an outpouring of sympathy uh, for the square. I have the the numbers in the book, but I think it's like something like 70% of Ukrainians at the very least, say that they are against the particular way that security forces crack down on the students in Maidan, and you have an outpouring of support. But then you have a strange situation where a lot of people are in the square making demands upon the Yanukovych government, but what's going to happen next? And often another, this flattening happens where globally, this is interpreted as if it's the same kind of thing as Egypt, as if the people are rising up to overthrow the president, but Yanukovych has been elected. Yanukovych has a base of support. And again, these people often, just like voters in the United States, understand that they're voting for a deeply, deeply imperfect, if not a reprehensible political movement, but they just prefer it to the other one. And this is the, the dynamic that, that drives a lot of uh, voting in Ukraine before 2013. Because there are concrete divides in society that are classed and regionalized and all sorts of things. Absolutely. And crucially, this becomes important, you know, understandings of Ukrainian history. There's real like kind of mutually exclusive understandings of what Ukrainian history was, depending on where you are or, you know, not even where you are geographically, but just who you are. And so in this particular type of situation, organized pre-existing far right groups end up playing a larger role than they should. Not because that was, I think, planned. I mean, they, they had been planning, they had been planning for a long time for the necessity of a revolution and for pushing for a redirection of Ukrainian society. They, they had believed in organizing and violence for a long time. 
So they end up playing a role, especially in the situation where at the peak of Maidan, about the country's about split, the peak of Maidan, about 50% of Ukraine supports it. But I think you can only understand the very particular outcome based on the ways in which they do a punch a little bit above their, they punch above their weight, not representing anything close to the, uh, a large percentage of Ukrainian society, but being a tiny section of Ukrainian society that plays some kind of a role in what happens in the square. And then the this all relates to the question of representation that, that goes that is so important to not only to Brazil, but to, to Egypt. Depending on which TV show you watch, you might get told that it is a liberal movement, depending on if you're reading English language media or depending if you're watching uh, which Ukrainian television station you're watching or if you're watching Russian media, you will get a different idea of what is happening. And the final outcome, the final very tragic outcome, I think can only be understood as partially a result of the fact that Russian media takes the existing far-right presence and exaggerates it. And many people in the east of Ukraine especially, act based on what they have been told about what's happening in the square, just like everybody else in the world acts based on what they're being told about what's happening in the square. And this exaggeration that happens in Russia and then ultimately the Russian infiltration of the anti-Maidan movement after the transfer of power is all part of the story. So I think to tell the story of Maidan, it's, you know, just with every other case in the book, I like to go chronologically, pay attention to evolution and who ends up winning unexpected battles, who ends up taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves, whether or not they were planned for or not, and the way that the fundamentally illegible, or at the very least, very, very complex street explosion is represented to different people in the world in different ways. So yeah, the question of mediation really matters in Maidan, not only the way that it's represented to people in the East of Ukraine, to the people of West of Ukraine, and to people around the world, to people in the English-speaking world, Ultimately, also, of course, the way that the United States signals its preferences at the end of Maidan really matter to the ultimate outcome that of the, the uprising. This matters just like the, the power that the far right is able to uh, establish relative to its actual support in society. All of these things, all of these things end up mattering to the very specific outcome that you get in February 2014. But I think the best way to look at it is to disaggregate all these different elements because they are different than the first people on the streets or the mass of sort of regular people and what they thought they wanted to achieve. Because often if you actually ask them what these people in the middle moment thought they wanted to achieve was something like economic justice, something like de-oligarchization. A lot of these people are ultimately very disappointed with the way it goes. If you fast forward to 2020, there's another poll that's done after Crimea is no longer part of Ukraine, after you can no longer do a survey in the Donbass region, that only 40% of Ukrainians say that they would redo Maidan if they could. And I think that the best way to tell that story is to go in order and see all of these different elements arising as reactions to each other, just as that is the only way that I think you could tell the Brazil story, the Egyptian story, or the Chilean story, or the Hong Kong story. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast that helps us understand the past so we can organize for a better future. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode, like every episode of The Dig, is made possible thanks to our listeners who support us at patreon.com and is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. 
Jacobin is an incredible publication. You've probably seen a lot of what they've published online, but they also have a beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and is well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 70,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin. There's a link in the show notes. Click it. Chilean President Gabriel Boric is, I think, perhaps the hero of your story in, in some sense. As you tell it, the mass uprisings of the 2019 Estallido Social, or social explosion, sent the political system into crisis. And Boric, a member of Congress at the time, stepped into this void, this breach, and negotiated an exit on behalf of the movement, a, a deal to respond to the mass protest by convening a constituent assembly to draft a new constitution to replace the old constitution that was put in place by Pinochet. And... Boric, you write, had the credibility to do this because he, like other top leaders of the 2011 student movement, really legendary leaders in Chile, Camila Vallejo, Carol Cariola, Giorgio Jackson, they had gone into the Communist Party or, or Frente Amplio, left-wing party politics. They had become representatives. Yet, even still, many in the streets at the time thought Boric had sold the movement out and that he had no right to represent them at all. But you write that Boric making that move was essential, and and you contrast his action favorably against what happened with Hong Kong's horizontalist mass movement, how that all ultimately played out. Why, why was Boric stepping into that void, that representational void, so essential? And, and what does the experience of Hong Kong show about the risk of not doing so? What I would say first is I'm not sure if that I he's the hero of my story in the sense that I lift him up as, but he's he wins at the very least. I mean, this is hopefully not my like most other things in the book. This is not my value judgment, but I think he is the winner of the Estallido Social. He becomes the president, and whether or not he becomes a good president carries through with the goals of the Estallido Social. That's a separate issue, but he ends up becoming the recipient of power. Uh, as a result of this very indirect and strange outcome of the uprising in Chile. So what you have in Chile is, like in Brazil, uh, a movement against a rise in the price of public transportation. Like in Brazil, this consists of trying to block the turnstiles or jump turnstiles, uh, direct action tactics, which lead to a crackdown, which lead to an outpouring of support for society, which leads to a large amount of people in the streets unsure exactly what to do. Uh, like in Argentina in 2001, you have the explosion of sub-assemblies. They're called cabildos in, in, in Chile in this, in this moment. There's a lot of fascinating and productive discussions in these cabildos. Often the feminist movement takes a leadership role in organizing the response to police repression. Uh, I spoke with a lot of uh, Chilean feminists that, that, that really are important in shaping the outcome in Chile. But still, you do get to this moment where like no one's quite sure what's supposed to happen next. Like... 
This has been going on for a while. The assemblies are happening. They're not sure what to do with the, with the decisions that are made in the assemblies and who to count because the people that are coming tend to be, and this is a problem that goes all the way back to, you know, Plaza del Sol in Spain. Like it's the people that have free time that are able to show up every, you know, a week, which means that there's overrepresentation of people that don't have jobs, the hours of the day in which you would have to show up. So there is this, again, this explosion, this illegible movement. There's, it's not clear what's going to happen next. And, and, and something else that's very important in the final outcome in Chile is that there is labor action, which really puts pressure on the Pineda government. And again, this is a very important contrast with Brazil 2013. Luckily, perhaps it's luck, perhaps it's a combination of luck and preparation. This is not a center-left president. This is a, a right-leaning president whose destabilization is not likely to uh, go bad for the left. It's likely to be good for existing center-left forces. But still, there's this situation. Well, what now? What happens is... Behind closed doors, existing political representatives, the people that are in government elected to represent the Chilean people, come up with a, it's called, they call it Acuerdo por la Paz, like a, a, a peace accord, basically. And the accord, the agreement that the politicians make, not people from the streets, the politicians make, is to resolve this with a referendum on whether or not to replace the Pinochet constitution with a new one. Now, many people in the streets, especially on the anarchist left, especially some of the people that are actually fighting the hardest or, or, or were there at the beginning and made all this happen, they view this as a top-down imposition of meaning onto the streets, which in a sense it is. The streets did not come up with this peace accord. It was not the, the people as a apparently spontaneous horizontally structured, digitally coordinated mass uprising that asked for this. It was the representatives that said, this is what you're asking for, what we're going to give you. And so they're not really wrong that this is an imposition, especially in the anarchist understanding of politics or the, or the horizontalist rejection of representation. This is the government trying to make a bid to represent what is happening on the streets. But I think compared to all the other ways this could have gone, at the very least, you had people in power, Boric, that understood more or less what this protest thing was all about. He had arisen from the 2011 protest movement. This, this imposition of meaning onto the streets was close enough that a lot of people went home. Not everyone went home. The last time I was in Chile, they were still doing like little uh, estallido Protests every week. I got water canned in. This was, I think, 2021. So years later. But it was like smaller groups of encapuchados uh, hanging out near Plaza Dignidad. Exactly. It was still happening. But this imposition of meaning was accepted by enough people that it was kind of a resolution. And I think that the streets, if we take all of the other episodes in this decade as an example or as a guide, were never going to be able to speak in a unified voice and ask for something coherent that could be delivered by the existing government. So this imposition of meaning was close enough. And so a lot of people that in 2019 saw this imposition of meaning as an authoritarian act decided over the next year, by the time that I interviewed them in 2021, they had decided they were glad that he did it because they were on a path to approving a new constitution. Now, that new constitution, at least in its first attempt, did not pass. So it's very possible that a lot of those people would have gone back to their first interpretation of what happened and said, oh, actually, no, that was the wrong solution. And this is something that happens, you know, as a journalist, it comes up all the time with 
memory. Memory changes. Like in my dawn, I spent the summer of 2021 in Ukraine. I interviewed them often after the Russian invasion and their their understanding of what happened back in 2014 was slightly different because it was inflected through the final final outcome often they were coming down more on the side of what they would have previously rejected on nas- as nationalist excesses they were slightly more understanding of that position than they would have, than they were because of the ways things had polarized since yeah just because of the way the long you know history is always written rewritten every day for the rest of all time. Every generation is reinterpreting the past in their own ways. In the case of Chile, the first attempt to change the constitution in pass, it's absolutely possible that the Boric government will be an absolute disaster. In Brazil, large parts of the left are unhappy with the ways that Boric has acted in the international arena. But that's all, that's all I think, separate to the fact that considering the, all the different ways that the Estadio Social could have gone, considering all the ways that the other mass explosions in this book did go, at least he became the president. What he does after that is on him. It's not really related to the dynamic that I'm an- analyzing in the book. Now, in Hong Kong, which, of course, happens against a very different background, happens in a part of the PRC which is very far from the actual center of decision-making power, as important as Hong Kong is for the economy of the PRC, how important it was for the economy of the PRC, how large it looms in the mind of Western observers of the PRC, is quite a small part of the vast, vast swaths of humanity that are governed by the Communist Party of China. So, of course, this happens against a very different set of, uh, of, of possibilities and circumstances. But ultimately, after, again, Hong Kong, I think, should be uh, analyzed like Ukraine and everywhere else in discrete moments, because there are moments when quite a lot of people come onto the streets in rejection of a particular extradition bill or in combination with a rejection of an extradition bill and the rejection of the crackdown on the initial marches against the extradition bill. But often there's this flattening that what happens at the end of 2019 is the same thing. But really, I think it's important to separate all that out. What happens at the end of 2019 is not the same as what happens in those big marches, is not the same as what motivated those marches. But by the end of 2019, you really do have essentially groups of protesters which are trying to impose as much costs on the government as possible by shutting down Hong Kong, often with a very po- different political outlook than the, the mass marches that attracted so many people. And Beijing is able just to wait it out. Beijing, I mean, we don't know exactly what Beijing was saying or thinking behind the scenes. But the weeks in which many people in the Hong Kong protest movement imposed costs in the form of disruption and destabilization in this small corner of the PRC. That was something that Beijing could just let happen. Pushing pushing for a revolutionary situation in a place where revolution is impossible. And you cite Aulang Yu, who I had on the podcast a few years ago, and he was a long-time left-wing Hong Kong activist. And a, a key point he makes to, to you and that he made on the pod is that Hong Kong people's struggle 
will only be capable of sort of like truly revolutionary aims if it's united to struggles in the mainland. Right. And you have to recalibrate based on that reality. Yes. And he says a couple of things that make a lot of sense. He says, you know, if we had, you know, a lot of the pe- the Hong Kong protesters that I spoke to, you know, wistfully, tragically, you know, in, in, in a tone of self-deprecation said, like, we wish we would have paid more attention to revolutionary history rather than Hollywood films and sort of, you know, romantic ideas of of how to carry out political change. But what uh, what he says is that the idea, if you look at, if you study very carefully the history of social movements and political struggles, the idea of revolution in one city doesn't really exist. Like, and, and there is a moment that he sees as quite tragic where the capability of whatever is happening in Hong Kong to act with China becomes an anti-China, or at least can be read based on a reading of existing and very real facts as basically an anti-China movement. And xenophobic. Yes. And he sees that as the end. Like there's, that means it's, you know, the writing is on the wall. That is failure. We are in the PRC. And this is something that is forgotten, you know, often in the Western media. There was never any kind of anything close to support for leaving the PRC. The vast majority of respondents to surveys in Hong Kong always wanted to stay in, in the PRC, even if, not even if, stay in the PRC, of course, in a better version of it, in a version which may have more autonomy, more democracy, depending on, or indeed with more power from Beijing. This, you know, that tendency very much exists also. But there was never any kind of support in Hong Kong for leaving the PRC. So he sees that once the movement becomes anti-China, that it is doomed. This means basically declaring war on an enemy that is more powerful than you. And, you know, ultimately what happens is the tactics which take on a more radical and radical form as less people are actually involved in the protest than back in the, the days of the big march against the extradition bill, which again, there's another dynamic like the extradition bill, you know, Carrie Lam does a very, very bad job of communicating this in Hong Kong. And I think that even Beijing is, a, a, it becomes clear that Beijing is not happy with the way that she's, she's doing this. But she does kind of say, okay, you've protested this extradition bill. Fine, it's gone. But then there is this like huge mass of energy in the streets and what, what to do with it. And, you know, to, this all rhymes with Brazil and in and, and, and Turkey, like out of sort of nowhere, quote unquote nowhere. But if you look carefully, it always comes from somewhere. There are, this, there are these five demands that are articulated, but it's unclear exactly how. From Telegram. Yeah, basically from Telegram groups and from, from discussions, you know, discussions made in an ad hoc way without sort of mechanisms for either deciding on them amongst the, the movement itself or ever credibly making the promise to Hong Kong that if we get some of this, that there will be de-escalation because there's no one to make that promise for us. And ultimately, the pandemic gets in the way as it does with the end of the decade. And that's why I end the, the decade in 2020. Beijing just kind of lets it lets it go and then comes back later to essentially, I think, speed up the process of integration that was always the plan behind uh, One Country, Two Systems. But the, the timeline just went just 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 sped up. So you said a few minutes back that that what Boric has done in office is another matter entirely. But I do want to ask about that, because in Chile, very tragically, very depressingly, the left's proposed constitution, the constitution to replace the dictatorship era constitution with the most progressive constitution in the world was decisively rejected by voters last year. What sort of failure was it then? Could could critics of the Chilean left's electoral or representational turn, could they say that this constitutional failure and, and the limits of Boric's government, that this, 
this all demonstrates the shortcomings of this alternative route for mass protest movements? Or, or if not, how, how should we think about that failure? Yes, that kind of narrative is possible. And so, for example, I live in Brazil and certain parts of the Brazilian left would come up with the narrative that in contrast to the structures that allowed for the Lula victory in 2022, the existence of the victory, the particular type of victory, the particular type of left movement that exists in Chile has a harder time really connecting with a base in a long-term way or achieving strategic victories. But these are these are fights that happen constantly between different different movements in, of the left. But yes, this is, again, so the, 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 to, to the extent that which Boric is a winner of this decade, it is relative to a very, very low bar, right? Like he just barely gets over the line against Kost, the essentially Pinochet defending candidate in the election that, that, uh, that delivers him the presidency. So I think a few things can be said about the ultimate performance of Boric in Chilean politics. The movement that they put together in Congress was still quite young relatively to something like the PT. Then the constituent assembly that is put together that writes the new constitution, you can come up with a a couple of ways to interpret the ultimate failure. One is that they wrote a bad constitution and this, this, you know, you could say that the constitution was, had too much stuff or it was the wrong type of constitution or it wasn't class-based. Then, you know, you can critique the content of the constitution and those, those critiques exist inside and outside of Chile. But then there's also like the very basic electoral question. I think that the voting process that picked the members of the constituent assembly was voluntary, whereas the final vote was mandatory. So you had two different electorates in the two different moments of voting on this constitution. So you had kind of younger and more progressive voters picking the members of the constituent assembly. And I spent a few weeks like wandering around and watching watching them write the constitution. But then the final the the final vote on it was a different set of voters entirely. This seems to me to have been not only in contrast to an ideological problem, this is like a real nuts and bolts electoral mismatch. This is this seems like a, a recipe for difficulties that could have been avoided. But absolutely, the extent to which Boric wins this fundamentally illegible and it's really unpredictable, and if, if we take the rest of the decade as a guide, quite dangerous explosion, it's relative to a very low bar. And he just barely gets over the line and struggles... Uh, so far, and um, you know, this doesn't mean that he will continue to do so, uh, vis-a-vis the concrete conservative political and economic forces in that country, which are something that don't go away, even if you, you do get the mass protest explosion that happens to deliver you political power. This is the same thing as Egypt. Like, before and after the explosion, you still have the same power structures that existed, right? Like, like nothing, like, you, you might change who is in, in, in control of particular institutions you might have forced a shift but most of like it's the same country that you're dealing with before and after the explosion and chile is a country which a lot of you know a lot of voters came very close to handing the presidency to a defender of of the pinochet government an overriding concern of your book is these dominant anarchist and horizontalist currents which achieved a lot of power over protest movements in the early part of of this century but in, in the Latin American context in particular, 
This this was also a time when new party-based movements of the left were, win- were winning power across the region in, in Bolivia, Ecuador, Venezuela, and of course, Brazil, which we've been discussing a lot. These parties always rode a wave of popular protest and organization into government. And their governments often radicalized as a result of these movements. But but those movements also came into conflict with the left in power, leading to an often conflictive dynamic between the social movement left and the left in power. In Bolivia, Ecuador, and Brazil, these conflicts in various ways in every one of these countries helped the right take power. Does Latin America tell a somewhat particular story here alongside this more general global story that you're telling, a story that has lessons for both the social movement and governing party-based left that, that we all need to learn here in the U.S. and everywhere if we're going to build the movements and parties that we need to win power and then to govern? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that Latin America is a region with, with its own particular dynamics. And again, like this is very, all very obvious stuff, easier said than done. Uh, someone we forgot it at the beginning of the decade, or at least certain people did. Every like region is distinct, and those distinctions need to be understood very carefully. In some cases, Bolivia, you really have a, a set of union structures and a real party um, that comes together and remains stable even through a coup in 2019, is able to uh, weather the repression and and come back to power. Moss is a party that turns out to be quite resilient in the face even of severe reaction. The PT is a party that is able to come back after uh, 2022. But I do think that the particularities of Latin America are interesting because unlike, you know, Indonesia, I was in Southeast Asia for many years, and it's really hard to translate the political spectrum in many countries in in Southeast Asia back into the terms of Western European languages, whereas really a lot of things line up. I mean, all of Latin America, just like the United States, all of the countries uh, in South America that we're discussing are, like the United States, Western European settler colonies with whites in general still at the top of a very clear racial hierarchy. There are quite a lot of similarities or a lot of ways in which Latin American politics are more legible to us. I think that can be that lead to lead to benefits and dangers. Sometimes we sometimes we overestimate the similarities. But I think it is also the case that the United States is again, this is a very, very broad story. I think the United States is becoming more like Latin America than it was 10 years ago. There's a this this essay, I think it's Alex O'Trulli that, that wrote it. Brazilianization. I think again, as a very, very broad story, this is this is. It's a compelling essay. It's compelling. It's credible. The collapse of whatever was left of welfare state and social democratic institutions, extreme inequality, being a path that we are sort of on. I think that makes Latin America especially interesting. But again, the, again, to answer one of the other questions embedded in your question is that. Overall, in the neoliberal era, what we've seen actually is the rise and destruction, like the constant, like cycling through parties that fail to establish long-term resilience, that arise and disappear and arise and disappear and arise and disappear. So MAS and the PT are sort of exceptions against that larger narrative. Are there particular lessons from the region that are, that are, maybe additional to the main lessons of your book about how the left in power and the social movement left, where there's going to be kind of a natural, inevitable tension 
how that tension can be maximally productive rather than leading to just kind of like calamity at times. Yeah, I think that there is a serious tension that is inevitable when you have social democratic movements in the global south. I think that the best examples that we can look at throughout all of the history of the post-war, so 1945 to 2023 era of U.S.-led capitalist hegemony, demonstrate that there are very serious barriers to carrying out social reform. And even when social reform is possible, one must plan for the inevitable attempt to claw back power from existing elites, often in concert with international partners. I think that the best ever cases of social democracy in the global south, Bolivia, Lula, demonstrate just how difficult it is to hold on to power. And that when, again, this is back to the the thing that I just keep harping on throughout these conversations, is that when there is a power vacuum, it will tend to be those pre-existing reactionary, if not feudal, and internationally well-connected forces that will rush in the quickest because they've been waiting for this. Uh, They were shocked and horrified to lose a small amount of privileges in the initial successes of of a social democratic government. I think a lot of times liberal English-speaking media looks at the performance of this or that country in the global south, this or that leader in Latin America, indeed, Africa, Southeast Asia, throughout the world, outside of the rich North Atlantic. And by paying very, very close attention only to one particular leader, you can always find a mistake. You can always find, oh, well, they didn't do this. They should have done this. Oh, corruption was a problem. Oh, they did not take advantage of the very particular opportunities. But if you look at how difficult it has been for any leader in the global South since 1945 to stay in power and succeed, I think the only conclusion you can really come to is that the odds are stacked against you, that the system is fundamentally constructed in a way in the global South, that it is very, very difficult to carry out progressive social democratic reform. U.S. power plays an important role in the story that you tell alongside just the coercive power of the capitalist world system, as you were just describing it. In Libya, NATO seized on mass protests to intervene, ensuring Gaddafi's violent downfall. In Kiev, the U.S. energetically supported Maidan protesters. Meanwhile, the U.S. looked the other way when Saudis rolled into Bahrain to crush to crush the popular uprising there. And then you tell a very interesting story about Brazil in 2013. At the time of the mass protests in Sao Paulo, Turkey was going through its Gezi Park uprising, and Turkish President Erdogan called Dilma to warn her that he suspected that what was happening in both countries was a foreign-backed destabilization campaign or, or a coup attempt. Vladimir Putin, obsessed with so-called color revolutions, called Dilma to say much the same thing. At the time... You write that Dilma disagreed, believing, as you write, that the protests were were caused by raised expectations. Quote, that once you deliver citizenship and some of its associated benefits to a previously oppressed population, they ask for even more. But these days, you write that Dilma thinks that Erdogan and Putin were right. And as for Lula, that he believes that Lava Jato was backed by the FBI and the U.S. State Department. What's your overall analysis of the role that foreign intervention, particularly U.S. intervention, both real and imagined, plays in all of this? On on the one hand, 
Putin-style color revolution rhetoric really flattens and distorts complex realities on the ground. And it's become an all-too-convenient way for authoritarian leaders to delegitimize any sort of opposition. But on the other hand, the U.S. has intervened in so many countries for such a very long time. And the very incohate nature of these sorts of mass protests, alongside all the other shortcomings and problems with their incohate nature, it also leaves them all the more vulnerable to external intervention and manipulation. So what's your ultimate take? So yeah, that's a that's a big and good question. I'll start with the particularities and try to move out to the general. So Lula, it is documented now that Lava Jato worked with the FBI and the U.S. State Department behind the scenes during the years in which they were breaking Brazilian laws and ultimately imprisoning him in a case that was ultimately judged to be conducted illegally by the Supreme Court. So it's not that he says that he believes that Lava Jato was backed by the FBI and the U.S. State Department. So the Lava Jato was working with the FBI and U.S. State Department. The, the sort of question mark was why, if it was about what they believed to be an anti-corruption campaign, or if it was motivated some other by some other geopolitical concerns. What Lula said is that he believes that the uh, FBI and the U.S. State Department were driven by a desire to crush Brazilian industry, to take to out what we might call Brazilian national champions in the petroleum and construction industries. Odebrecht, Petrobras, the claim that he made was that the that Lava Jato was directed with the intent of crushing the major Brazilian industries that were in competition with the United States or would have allowed for Brazilian development in the long term. It's not really controversial that the FBI and the State Department were in contact with Lava Jato behind the scenes. And then, yeah, Dilma's, Dilma's response is really interesting because at the time, she says, no, 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 like to Erdogan and to Putin. And she knows, you know, she's in bricks. Dilma's ultimate decision not to change her position on the BRICS, her commitment to it, is what really causes U.S.-Brazilian relations to deteriorate after the annexation of Crimea. The Obama administration really wants Dilma to change her orientation towards Russia, or at least publicly do so after the annexation of Crimea. She remains more committed to the BRICS than to that course, and that really leads to a deterioration of, of, of relations. And so... With my first book, which is really about U.S.-backed violence in the construction of the particular global system that we get at the end of the Cold War, specifically the mass murder of communists, that system serves as the backdrop for everything that happens in this book. But the very specific nature of the global system, the very specific nature of the ways that imperialist intervention can be and is a fundamental part of that system appears in different ways. Sometimes it's more violently and unavoidably obvious in the case of like a Libyan intervention. Sometimes it shapes things before the mass explosion. Sometimes the you know so-called civil society groups that are influential for getting things off the ground only exist in their particular format because of funding from outside. But often, as you say, the real dynamic is that this particular form of contention creates opportunities for outside intervention, whether that comes from Saudi Arabia in the case of Bahrain, the United States in the case of Libya, or indeed the more subtle and ongoing process that we see in Brazil, where where several things take place that are shaped by their relationship to the United States, you know, Lava Jato being an example. And so 
the way that I hope to tell this story is one that is faithful to the way that things feel on the ground, where the particular violence that often can be employed to reinforce the global system appears over the horizon, sometimes unexpectedly, sometimes in a very subtle way, sometimes very forcefully, and is very well placed to take advantage of the particular power vacuums created by this particular form of contentious. So we can go through each one if you like. But I mean, in some of the cases, like, you know, South Korea uh, or Chile, I don't see any reason or any evidence to link it to that particular type of intervention. But this is something that many of the interviewees learned or they reflected upon looking back, is that this particular type of explosion was particularly vulnerable to co-optation or capture by outside forces that were very unapologetic and unashamed of rushing in to take advantage of that situation. I mean, Hillary Clinton, most famous example, celebrating in Libya, you know, we, we came, we saw he died. Um, if you look to what Libya is now, um, that is quite a, a shocking statement. And if you look to what happened in Bahrain, this is really a moment that it becomes clear that if this kind of thing is allowed to happen, the ultimate dreams of the Arab Spring are going to be very difficult to realize. But this is, that is the larger background against which all of these events happen, the, the same system that is established by the end of the first book. But I try to go chronologically and show if this matters at the beginning or if in the middle or at the end, because I think at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. has a more subtle and wide-ranging set of tools at its disposal to reproduce the actually existing system than in the, you know, the swashbuckling days in the 50s and 60s when the CIA is just making like comically stupid errors left and right. You write that there are certain periods that are that are Lenin's weeks when decades happen and and that these are moments, I think, when decisions really matter. You write, quote, that things could have gone differently, that Bolsonaro and CC were not were not inevitable. But given the patterns you've identified across so many different moments, where did you see the real decision-making points available? Didn't, didn't the fact that so many of these movements lacked the sort of coherently structured organizations that are required to make these decisions, didn't mean that there were, by and large, no decisions to be made and thus perhaps that everything was indeed inevitable or, or at least that some of the stories you tell are more or less inevitable than others? I think that it is true that in some cases there was no decision made, that ultimately the opportunity just passed because there was not an actual action or a course of action decided upon. And in that case, I think, I guess, if you were to reconstruct the very <laughs> unpredictable nature of the explosion, it would have been possible to predict what would have come afterwards, which is the assertion of pre-existing ideological or political structures or the reassertion of existing elite power. But I do think I want to avoid the tendency, and I guess this is, this is a very, very easy thing to do, of sort of a reverse teleology, to act as if everything was always going to weigh that it ultimately did and, and end up imposing this flattening of space and time that we, I think we fell victim to in 2011 and using it in reverse to look back on everything as if it is synonymous with the final outcome. So even if the final outcome, if you understand all of the elements is understandable and we do seek to understand how we got to the final outcome, I think that it is an error to look back upon any moment in human history, but particular one which offered so much unexpected opportunity as if this was the only way it could have gone. And I think that mistake is made 
fairly often in 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 attributing to early parts of the movement the ultimate characteristics of the outcome because I don't think you have to do that. I think you can understand just how bad things went without saying that they're all the same thing. Your book covers mass protest movements in in places that are all in the global south or or at least outside Western Europe and the United States, outside of the traditional global north. Why why did you decide against including U.S. protest movements like Occupy Wall Street, though you do talk about Occupy, or more recently, the George Floyd movement of 2020, or in Europe, the Indignados movement in Spain, or Syntagma Square in, in Greece? And then I guess even more importantly than, than why you didn't include them, why you focused on these other parts of the world, more importantly, would your book's analysis and conclusions hold if you if you did include these cases? Or was the dynamic in the global north just different? So I absolutely do think that there is a distinction that should be made between the global north and the global south in general. I think this is a, it's important to understand the nature of the global system and the ways that every single country relates to the global system in a different way. The United, the United States is quite a unique country in that it is really the hegemon. There is no country that is more powerful than it. So at the same time that, yes, we must be aware of the ways that countries in the global south have a different relationship to global power than those in the global north. The answer as to why no countries in the traditional first world are included is a little bit more mundane. The criterion uh, for inclusion in the book is that the mass protest got so large as to destabilize or to dislodge an existing government. Now, you can maybe argue that 2020 in the United States got close. Why did I, why did I end the decade on January 1st, 2020, other than the very simple uh, fact that it is 10 years later than January 1st, 2010? Uh, because I wasn't here, essentially, because I was I have not lived in the United States since 2006. I already started working on the book in 2019. I was already putting the proposal together at the end of that year. And I thought that wrapping it up in that sort of clean manner with that sort of clean break of the pandemic at the end of the decade would allow for me to speak most coherently about the subjects that I had an ability to investigate well in relationship to the rest of the English speaking media, because in this in the world of English speaking publishing, I thought that I would be pretty, pretty poor place to come up with a book or even a chapter about George Floyd 2020. However, I do think and people have told me this, I expected that it might go this way, is that reading through the book, reading through what happens in 2010, 11, and through the rest of the decade, this will rhyme or remind readers of things in the United States that did live through George Floyd. I think I think a lot of that reflection that I hope will happen in each reader's mind is productive. And I think that I thought that that was a better way for that conversation to happen was like in conversation with the experiences that each reader had. So, yes, I think the lessons, some of the lessons absolutely matter. And I think that when they don't matter, I hope that's clear that my particular style of historical reconstruction make it clear when the lessons seem to be important for the United States and when they don't. I mean, one way that th- is things are really different, and I and I state this kind of glibly in the book, but in general, in Western Europe, in countries that are considered to be by the global system, the United States, global media, to be allies and stable democracies, no matter how large a protest gets, 
NATO is not going to bomb you. Like I, I put in the book, like no matter what the, the solution that is presented in Egypt or the solution that is imposed on Libya is not going to happen in Spain and Greece. NATO is not going to bomb itself, right? Like the United States is the only country in the world that is the, that, that has no country more powerful than it. By definition, no country that is more powerful than the United States can take advantage of a vacuum that is created in the United States. So that is one way I think that the global north needs to be separated from the global south. Often global north countries are given the benefit of the doubt that, oh, you have security forces that are allowed to do their job. They're allowed to repress because every country that exists has security forces whose job it is to use violence to maintain the system as it exists, to reproduce the order in any given country. And often first world countries are given the benefit of the doubt by global media and the world's largest military, which is the U.S. military. France is allowed to sort out who's breaking the law, whose head gets to get cracked, and who is allowed to uh, protest peacefully. Whereas this kind of slippage into, oh, the people are asking for your removal, let's just do it for you, is something that is more likely to happen the poorer your country is. And the more that the U.S. and its allies see you as a contending power or a threat to the quote-unquote U.S.-led global order. So that's a, that's a long answer, but hopefully I think, I think that's why it's so important that this book is constructed as a history rather than like an argument. Because I think that going through the actual events and looking at the structure of the global system, it, it becomes clear what is different and what is the same across countries and how the, that first world global south divide really matters. But the things that happen in perhaps Egypt or Brazil or Chile that will lead a U.S. reader to remember something about what they lived through. And again, this book is written, you know, it's published in the U.S., but I also expect like Iranian readers to come to this book and read 2010 to 2020 against their experience of what's happening now. This has actually happened. I was interviewed by, you know, an Iranian outlet recently. That was the reason for my particular delineation of time and topic. That this is the book that I thought that I could write best. And I thought that by doing the best book that I could, it would be it would create dialogue with what each particular reader brings to the text. Vincent Bevins, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And I, and I hope that I've made sense over these, over these long conversations. <laughs> that was great. That was the second of my two-part interview with Vincent Bevins, a journalist and longtime foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Jakarta Method and the book that we discussed today, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that they cannot represent themselves, they must be represented. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Rio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such platform, please rate and review us positively. 
Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling other people to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.